0: Well, today on this Palm Sunday, we're concluding our short Lytton series. And if you've been with us, you'll be reminded that it's a series where we've been considering particular practices or certain habits of the Christian life. And the last habit that I want us to consider in this series is really the principal habit or overarching habit, and that is the habit of following Jesus And to consider this habit, I want us to read from Luke chapter 9 and verses 51 to 62. Today is the day when we remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But before He did that, we're going to hear in Luke 9 how He set His face to first go to Jerusalem to accomplish God's purposes. Luke 9, beginning in verse 51, let us now hear God's Word. When the days drew near for Him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And He sent messengers ahead of Him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Him. But the people did not receive Him, because He set His face toward Jerusalem. And when His disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, "'I will follow you wherever you go.' And Jesus said to him, "'Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head.' To another he said, "'Follow me.' But he said, "'Lord, let me first go and bury my father.' And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. So here's the first thing we need to know about this particular passage. And that is that it's the beginning of a whole new section in the entirety of the Gospel of Luke. And it's a section that's traditionally referred to as the travel narrative. You see, up to this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been ministering in one location. That location has been Galilee in the north. But as this passage makes clear... Jesus, on a particular day, began to move southward as He made His way to the capital city of Jerusalem. And in the Gospel of Luke, this journey is so important that Luke spends 10 chapters talking about it. Now, there's no way this morning, in the time that we have, that we can consider all the details of this all-important journey, but that's actually okay. And the reason is because the way that Luke introduces this journey, that he takes 10 chapters to unfold, the way that he introduces it actually sets the tone for the entirety of the journey. It also gives us the key for why Jesus made this journey in the first place. And in doing all this, it also teaches us what it means to follow Jesus. Or we could put it this way to journey after Jesus as His disciples. Now, in considering this introduction to this journey to Jerusalem, I want us to do so under three headings. The determination of Jesus, that's verse 51. The disapproval or rejection of Jesus, verses 52 to 56. And then finally, the demand of Jesus, verses 57 to 62. So first then, the determination of Jesus. As you'll see in verse 51, Luke makes clear that Jesus was determined to journey to Jerusalem. Why? Well, he actually has told us back in verse 31 of the very chapter that we're looking at this morning. What took place in verse 31? What was taking place in verse 31 of chapter 9? Well, Jesus was having a conversation, a conversation with Elijah and Moses at the time of his transfiguration. What were they conversing about? Well, Luke tells us that Jesus and Elijah and Moses were conversing about His own departure, which He was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And the word Luke uses for departure is literally exodus. In Jerusalem, rather than in Galilee, Jesus would accomplish God's promised new exodus— which tells us that Jesus began his journey to Jerusalem for the purpose of delivering his people from their slavery. From their slavery not to political forces, but to the dehumanizing forces of sin and death. But how would Jesus accomplish this new exodus? Well, through his own crucifixion, which means Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to die. To willingly give his life in exchange for his people. So that through his sacrificial death, we could be freed. Freed from the guilt and power and judgment of sin. And so that we could be freed to be brought into a relationship with God. A relationship comprised of life and love, forgiveness and acceptance. Put another way, Jesus was going to Jerusalem as the true Passover lamb, whose blood alone can set us free, that we might enter the true promised land, the promised land of being in a right relationship with God. But you know, that's where this passage gets interesting. For for in verse 51, it doesn't say, when the days drew near for Jesus to be crucified, which has been the focus. Rather, it says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, rather than focusing on Jesus' crucifixion, Luke instead focuses on Jesus' ascension, on the time after his death and resurrection when he would be taken up in order to take his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. Now, why at this crucial moment does Luke focus on Jesus' ascension? Well, because as central as the cross is, the cross alone wasn't Jesus' ultimate goal. Put another way, the cross wasn't the end. Rather, the cross was the means to an even greater end. The end of Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven. And think about it. If Jesus died and stayed dead, then he accomplished nothing. Without the resurrection and ascension, Jesus' death would be pointless. If He remained in the grave, then what that means is you and I remain in our sins. We remain separated from God. We remain in death. But thanks be to God that Jesus who died was raised. And after His resurrection, He ascended into heaven. And it's from that place that he then poured out his spirit, his promised spirit on all who trust in him. And it's the spirit who personally brings to us the risen and life of Jesus, the ascended life of Jesus. It's the spirit who brings all the benefits of Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension to us. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to set us free through his sacrificial death. And it was his resurrection and ascension that proved that his death was indeed sufficient to deliver us. Now, seen in this way, well, although Jesus was traveling to the literal Jerusalem, the reality was Jesus was actually traveling to the heavenly Jerusalem via the cross. He was going to die so that on the other side of death, he might ascend into heaven, where he now dwells before the face of God for us. And it's his ascension, which could only happen if he died, that guarantees that we too in him have a place before God. A forgiven place where God's face isn't a frown, but a smile a loving and gracious smile that welcomes us as His children. Jesus, the Son of God, set His face to go to Jerusalem. Think about this. He set His face to go to Jerusalem that the Father's face might be set upon us in love and acceptance. And when Luke says that Jesus set His face, he literally says Jesus stiffened His face. So much so that it became obvious that He was determined, so determined to go to Jerusalem that no one would ever keep Him from getting to His destination. And Jesus then was 100% committed. He was all in to give His life for us that we might share in His heavenly life. No one was going to keep Him from doing what He came to do, which means it was His determination that's actually secured our salvation. And my friends, our discipleship, our learning to to follow Jesus can only happen if we first recognize that Jesus was fully determined to have us as His own. So determined that He willingly sacrificed Himself on the cross because only if He sacrificed Himself for us could we share in all the benefits of His death and resurrection and ascension. Only if He gave His life for us can we share in the great reality of dwelling before the face of God, filled with the Spirit of God. So setting out on this journey, Luke first wants us to recognize just how determined Jesus was to go to Jerusalem, to give Himself up that we might be brought in. But then secondly, Luke wants us to see the disapproval or rejection Jesus endured on His way to Jerusalem. For in setting off, the first thing Jesus did was He sent some messengers. We can assume it was some of His disciples. To do what? Well, to make preparations for Him among the Samaritans, verse 52. Now, it seems that wherever Jesus was in Galilee at the time, the most direct route to Jerusalem the easiest way to get there geographically was to go through Samaria. Now, as most of you know, there was a long-standing animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Animosity that existed for religious and racial reasons. Jews saw Samaritans as faithless foreigners, right, literally as half-breeds. While Samaritans saw Jews as arrogant and uncharitable, and as a result, these two groups remained in continual hostility, resentment, and segregation. And knowing this, the surprise here is that rather than going around Samaria, which wouldn't have been eas- the easiest thing to do geographically, but it certainly would have been the easiest thing to do socially. But rather than going around Samaria, Jesus, a Jew, chose to go through Samaria And knowing the tension between these two groups, Jesus was thoughtful enough to try to prepare the Samaritans for his own arrival. Because his desire wasn't to avoid the Samaritans, no, his desire was to bless the Samaritans. Yet, as the text makes clear, the Samaritans missed this. Rather than seeing Jesus as their friend, they could only see him as their enemy. An enemy who really didn't care for them, but who instead, from their perspective, only wanted to use them for making his journey a little more convenient. Look how Luke puts this in verse 53. But the people didn't receive him. Why? Because they saw he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The Samaritans knew Jesus was heading to another place, and in knowing this, they saw his journey as having nothing to do with them. This has nothing to do with us, they thought. And therefore, they disapproved of his visit. Now, what's the sad irony? Well, again, why was Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem? He was determined to go to Jerusalem to give up his life on the cross and to do so not for one particular group of people. No, he was determined to go to Jerusalem to give up his life for all groups of people, Jew, Gentile, and Samaritan. The irony is that Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem for the Samaritan's salvation, and yet they couldn't see it. And in not seeing, they disapproved of Jesus and his travel plans. And notice, it was their disapproval that elicited a harsh response from Jesus' disciples, namely the two brothers, James and John, who in response to the Samaritan's rejection wanted to go all Elijah on them. Verse 54, when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell down, tell the fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, I have no idea what they thought that they actually had the idea that they could do this. But in that very moment, they got very heated. Jesus, you want us to do what Elijah did long ago to the people that rejected God? You want us to call down the fire of judgment? We'll do it. You just say the word, Jesus. We're ready. How did Jesus respond? He turned to them, and He rebuked them. And He rebuked them because they, like the Samaritans, had it all wrong. You see, they believed Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem was for the purpose of pouring out judgment on God's enemies. My friends, as the Gospel story makes clear, Jesus was going to Jerusalem not to inflict judgment to actually receive judgment. He was determined to go to Jerusalem not to call down fire on others who were different. No, he was going to Jerusalem so as to himself be consumed by the fire of God's judgment so that the enemies of God, which includes all of us by nature, that includes all of humanity, no matter our race or rank, might be forgiven. Because only if Jesus receives the consuming fire of God's judgment on the cross can we actually receive the cleansing fire of the Holy Spirit. For as we heard in our assurance of pardon, God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus, the innocent one, was condemned, So that sinful humanity, regardless of color, class, country, or culture, might be cleansed and forgiven. Yet the disciples missed this. And the reason they missed it is because they didn't yet understand the cross. And in understanding the cross, they didn't understand grace. And because they didn't understand grace, they couldn't extend grace to their enemies the disciples didn't think they actually needed grace. Maybe a little grace, but not a whole lot of grace. We're Jews. We're good. We're with Jesus. We don't really need grace. At the same time, they didn't think the Samaritans deserved grace. And you see, that's the way it always works. For in in a heart where God's grace is small, there you'll find a heart filled with judgment, And rejection of others. Yet in a heart where God's forgiving grace is large, there you'll find a heart filled with forgiveness and patience and love for others. The disciples only wanted judgment for those who thought different and looked different from them. And the reason is because they had neither grappled with the seriousness of their own sin nor had they grappled with the grace of the cross that alone could forgive their sin. And the question for us is, have we? Well, one of the ways we'll know is if our attitude toward others, toward those who are different, who look different, who are hard to deal with, who are even our enemies, is actually changing so that our posture toward them is no longer one of rejection and judgment, but of grace, of longing for them to know the grace of God's salvation. We live in a culture where there's a lot of us that want to call down judgment on those who are different from us, who look different, who think different, who vote different. And what we learn here is that, no, where God's grace is filling up our hearts, yes, we may disagree, but we are never called to call down the judgment of God. Because where grace has touched our hearts, we know that what we deserve is the judgment of God. And yet through the cross, we have been forgiven. That everything we are and everything we have is a sheer gift. And that heart then longs for others to know that gift. But how will they know that gift? Well, they won't know it if we go the route of James and John and want to call down judgment on everybody else. No, they'll know it only as we follow Jesus who himself was judged and who suffered so that we might be brought in. So therefore, what that means is that where one knows God's grace in Christ, one begins to show that grace to others. And with that, we come finally to our third heading, and that is to the demand of Jesus, the demand to follow Him. From verses 57 to 62, we see Jesus engaging in three different interviews with three different people concerning the nature of what it means to follow Him. Let's look quickly at these interviews. First of all, in verse 58, we meet an enthusiastic person who claims to be ready to follow Jesus wherever he goes. Now, isn't that the essence of discipleship? The the essence of following Jesus, being ready and willing to follow him wherever and whenever. I mean, how can we say we're his disciples if we aren't willing to follow him on his terms and in his way? And therefore, on the surface, it seems as as if this person has grasped the demand of following Jesus. So why, instead of rejoicing in this man's enthusiasm, does Jesus, in a sense, throw a wet blanket on it? Why does he tell him? Foxes have holes and birds of the air... Have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yes, this man was enthusiastic about following Jesus, but Jesus really wanted to know the implications of what it means to follow me. Simply put, following Jesus wherever he goes means being ready and willing to become homeless in the world. Now, not necessarily homeless literally, but certainly spiritually. For following Jesus means becoming a stranger in the world. It entails living out of step with the world and out of place with the world, of finding yourself outside the acceptable norms of the world's standards. Why? Well, because as a follower of Jesus, you have a new aim. You have a new desire. It's an aim and desire that's no longer for the world, which by nature is opposed to God. You're no longer to live for the world whose mindset is overly consumed with self, with living only for self. You're no longer to take your cues from the world. You're no longer to put your hope in the world's way or live for the world's praise. Rather, as a disciple, your priority and your hope is to be set on Jesus, so that your chief aim is to honor Him above all. Your chief aim is not to make your name great, but to make Jesus' name great. And where and when you seek to honor Jesus, there you'll find yourself feeling homeless in the world, in the culture in which we live. You'll find yourself experiencing rejection and ridicule. Think about it. How did the world treat Jesus? It put him on a cross. And what Jesus is saying is that if the world rejected me, it'll also reject you. So are you ready for this? Are you willing to endure this? Do you really want to orient your all around Jesus, even if it costs you your all in the world? Put as simply as I can, do we want want the world or Jesus to be our true home? you want the world or Jesus to be our true and lasting home. But then secondly, in verse 59, Jesus, and notice this time, He takes the initiative. The first guy comes up enthusiastically. Jesus now takes the initiative and He says to another, Follow me. But this person said, Lord, please let me first go and bury my father. To which Jesus responded somewhat harshly, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, how are we to understand this? Well, I think it's certainly the case that this young man's father had recently died. Commentators go back and forth. Maybe he was sick and about to die I think the reality is this man's father had recently died. And therefore, it was his responsibility as a good Jewish son to ensure that his deceased father received an honorable burial. And therefore, in asking Jesus to allow him to bury his father, he was asking him to let him do a good thing. And yet Jesus says, no, let those who aren't going to follow me bury your deceased father. But as for you, follow me and proclaim the kingdom." Now, why wouldn't Jesus allow this man to fulfill his good responsibility, his good obligation? Well, because he wanted this man and us to know that following him, that following Jesus must always be our first responsibility and obligation. An obligation and responsibility that's more pressing and that actually overrules all our other good responsibilities and obligations. And I know that's hard to hear, but it's necessary to hear. To hear that following Jesus means making Jesus first in everything. First in our hearts. First in our marriages. First in the way that we parent. First in our work and first in our play. Why? Well, because of who Jesus is. I mean, I can imagine this man thinking to himself, Who does Jesus think He is telling me that following Him is more important than burying my dad? But who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh. He's the Creator and He's the Lord. And as our Creator and Lord, He demands our all. We're not called to follow Jesus only when it's convenient or when it happens to fit into our schedules. No, we're called to follow him at all times and in all places because he alone is the Lord. And as our Lord, he calls us to yield our all to him, even our good things. Jesus doesn't want just a part of us. No, he wants all of us. He wants our hearts and homes, our bodies and business endeavors. He wants our mouths our money, and our minds. He wants it all so that He might give us His all. Because the reality is only Jesus' all will last unto eternity. That brings us then thirdly to the last interview of verse 61. This time we see another person coming to Jesus. This person, this time, he takes the initiative. I'll follow you, Lord, but please first let me say farewell To those at home. Now, behind these words is an ancient story, and it's the story of when the prophet Elijah called Elisha to follow him. You may remember the story. Elijah called Elisha, but Elisha said back to Elijah, First, let me say goodbye to my family. To which Elijah responded, By all means, say goodbye first and then come and follow me. You hear the connection? What's the point? Well, the point is this. Elisha's relationship to Elijah was secondary to Elisha's loyalty to his own family. But not so with Jesus. For our relationship to him is greater than all our relationships to others. For Jesus isn't just another Elijah. Elijah. No, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And because he is, the grammar of this man's claim, as well as the grammar of the man before him's claim, is all wrong. For here, this man calls Jesus Lord, but then he adds a condition. Lord, I will follow you, but first. But here's the thing, following Jesus doesn't work that way. We're not to say to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you, but first, and then fill in the blank with whatever you would be tempted to fill in the blank with. No, if Jesus is your Lord, there could be no ifs, ands, or buts. For discipleship demands our utmost allegiance to and fixed attention on Jesus. That's why Jesus adds what he does in verse 62 No one who puts his hand to the plow looks back, and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, if when plowing a field you look behind to what you've already plowed instead of looking ahead, then what's gonna happen? Well, the furrow or trench you're plowing is gonna be crooked and therefore useless. And here's Jesus' point following him requires a fitting response. And it's the response of fixing our eyes straight ahead on Jesus. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3, I forget what lies behind and I look straight ahead. We fix our eyes straight ahead on Jesus who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and who's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's that response that actually brings us all the way back to the very beginning, and that is to the determination of Jesus. A determination that led him to leave his own father's side in order to suffer in our place. A determination that put him out of step with the world. A determination that led him to receive the judgment of God on our behalf and a determination that kept him from looking back but instead kept him looking forward to the joy set before him. The joy of having you as his own. The joy of providing you a place before his Father's face. My friends, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself has not already done. And in this way, it's his loving determination that enables us and even propels us to embrace the demand of following Him. He gave His all for you, and now He asks you to give your all to Him. You're His joy, and because you are, He calls you to make Him your joy so that your habitual joy is to follow Him wherever He leads and no matter the cost. My friends, we can only follow Jesus if we understand that Jesus has set His face on us, stiffened His face to go to Jerusalem because He first, in response to His Father, and from all of eternity stiffened His face to do whatever it takes to have you as His own. And having been found by Jesus, as we sang earlier, means learning to stiffen our face upon the one who first stiffened his face to secure our salvation. Going to the cross, giving up his life, going into the tomb, rising from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father, not to be absent from us, but to actually be closer to us than we can scarcely imagine by sending his own spirit who dwells within us now and who encourages us daily, fix your eyes on him. Keep looking to him, because he alone is our life and our hope and our salvation. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, help us to grasp the wonder of your determination to have us as your own. May it melt our cold hearts. Revive us to walk in your way knowing you alone are our true home. Amen.